All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning to our continuing study of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 5. And just a couple of housekeeping things before we get started this morning. If you don't have a study guide, if you don't have a study guide, please raise your hand. If I could get a couple of volunteers to get the extras to people with the hand raised, that'd be great. And then we're about to have a uh, public uh, leaders meeting. Ryan, uh, somebody had mentioned to me that maybe the air's broke or maybe some of the thermostats are off. So I was going to get you to check all the thermostats to make sure they're on. So Ryan's going to do that. If it still remains to be hot in about 20 minutes, the air conditioner is broken. Uh, if, if, if not, then there were some thermostats off. So there's two back here that hide. And there's one there and, and one in the back. Rod's going to check on that. And we are about to pray. We're about to pray. So let's pray. Lord, God, we come and we thank you this morning, God, that we are your people. That we are called by your name. God, we thank you that we woke up today, your church, and we are in the middle we stand and live and move in the middle of your new covenant, Lord. And we thank you, God, that you have saved us, Lord. We worship you even today for the blood that is on the mercy seat that speaks a better word on our behalf than the blood of Abel. Thank you for the gift of righteousness that is ours, even in this moment as we call on your name. God, thank you for your nature. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have poured out on us in Jesus and and Father, we desire that you would draw near to us today through your word. God, that you would bless the teaching of your word. That you would make it effective in our life, Lord. Let it come with power. Make us more like Jesus through our contact with your words in Holy Scripture. God, we ask you to increase our love for one another in this church. Lord, give us discernible gains in godliness. God, make us more like you. Lord, don't let this time fall to the ground, but use it for your glory, to the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is going to be 1 John chapter 5. We're going to start out by reading these two verses together. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 in 17, this is God's word to us this morning. Let's get our eyes on them. This is the word of the Lord. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So we have some difficulties in our passage to, to work through this morning. I just want to say this on the front end. Today is going to be like a family meeting of Grace Community Church. It's going to be a heavy emphasis today of us as members of this local church sitting around this passage of Scripture with a heavy thrust towards us as members of this local church growing in our love for one another. 
So before we dive into this difficult text, I want us to back up for just a minute. I want us to remind ourselves, what is God's word in 1 John? What does it say is true of us now, today, for every Christian in this room? We're going to revisit some of these things. Okay? We study through this for months, so let's be reminded. What does God say is true about our lives right now, this morning? Okay? Let's review. First John tells us that the word of life has invaded the world of death. And we've heard it. We have heard the word of life. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 5 calls this message. It calls it the testimony of God. And we have heard God's testimony in regards to His Son. So I'll pause right there and I'll speak to anyone here today. That you are here. Maybe you're poking your head in. And you might or might not know Jesus Christ. And so I'll just use this moment. This is the testimony of God that He has given us about Jesus. What did God say about Christ? He told us that Jesus was the promised one. The Deliverer, the only Savior of sin. In fact, when Jesus came into the world, they said, call His name Jesus. Why? Because He's going to save His people from their sins. The Bible teaches that there is no other name in heaven and on earth given among men by which you can be saved. And so the only safe thing for any human being and for you this morning to do is receive what God has testified concerning His Son. This is the testimony of God about Jesus, that He is the Christ, that He is the only Savior of sin. How do we receive the testimony? We repent of our sins and we put our trust in Christ. And every Christian here, you've done that today. You have heard and received God's testimony about Jesus. That's 1 John chapter 5. And what does God do in response to that faith? He responds to our faith by receiving the testimony about Jesus. And He gives us eternal life. Life eternal. Do you know that you have that today? Every Christian in the room. You have been given eternal life. You are now experiencing it. It's not just something that you're going to go to heaven and experience it. You have it now. Life of the highest kind. The life of God pulsing through our souls. Again, I say this is true for every single Christian. And here's the deal. We need to be reminded of the glory of these things. Why? Because we can fall asleep to them. We know they're true on paper. We know that we belong to the Lord Jesus, but we can, we can be cold to these things. And so this is true for you. For every person in the room that believes the gospel, no matter what kind of week you've had, Okay? No matter what kind of difficulties you are facing in your life, no matter how difficult your job is, your marriage is, your parenting is, no matter how cold you are to Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel right now, you have eternal life. Eternal life. And we need brothers and sisters all around us calling us to wake up to the glory of what God has done in this church. So look around. Look around all around this room. Okay? All around this room, that is true of every person that has believed the gospel. That is an amazing thing. That we are surrounded by people in this room that have the life of the Holy One Himself. The life of God is pulsing through their souls. They are alive in Christ. Finally alive in the Lord Jesus. Now we know 
Now we know what it's like to truly live as God intended us to live in this world. To live for the glory and the praise of God in constant communion with God. This is eternal life and you have it today. As a Christian, as a believer of the gospel, you have this today, today. Now, we all know that we can grow cold to this. We need to be reminded of it. And so you think about how discernible the affections are on your face. If I told you, Daniel Sims, J.C. Hyatt, you have $10,000 in your billfold that I just slipped in there about 20 minutes ago before I came up to preach. Now, both of you brothers can think of a lot that you can do with $10,000. like, $10,000? Get some stuff done with $10,000. That can be put to good use. It's good news to you. It changes the way that, that you react. It changes your countenance almost immediately. Okay? I want you to think about you know, all the little children in this church. And they're going through a state. And, and in a lot of ways, they will believe a lot of things. that They're, they're not hooked on logic in a lot of ways like, like we are. And so... You just imagine me telling my five-year-old son, okay? Imagine me telling him that he possesses. So look at that sun, S-U-N up there in the sky. Ethan, you possess that. And he says, oh, man, you know, I, I never knew that. Like, I, I possess the sun. Of course, that's not true. But look at, the, look at the affections. Look at the demeanor that automatically pops on that little child's Face. He believes it. He believes that he possesses the Son, as silly as that is. Well, guess what? This morning, 1 John chapter 5, every believer in the room, you have the Son. You have not the S-U-N, you have the S-O-N. You have the Son, the one who made all things. He is yours. He is yours. You see how we just need to be constantly reminded of the glory. You mean I have Jesus. He is my possession. Do you see how glorious this is? We want to wake up to the glory of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Listen to Ecclesiastes. I shared this verse with you a couple months ago. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 7 says, I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And what we want to ask the Lord to help us with is that we would not be like those princes. The ones who have status and riches walking on the ground as though they did not have status and riches. We want to live a life in this world that reflects that we have eternal life. We have the Son. We want to wake up to the glory of the gospel that we have in Jesus. Eternal life with God. Just last week, Ryan taught on verses 13 and 14. And one of the things that we learned about that passage is that God wants you to be absolutely certain that you possess eternal life. No question about it. And not just that you have eternal life when you die and go to heaven, but that the life of God is at work in you now, today. God wants you to know that with certainty. Listen to verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Pen to paper, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this end, that you would know that you possess, that you have eternal life. So here's the question to the members at Grace Community Church. We have spent months studying through this letter. And the question I want you to think about is, did John get what he was after in your life? Through your study of this letter, through your hearing of these truths, are you more and more certain that you possess life eternal, that you have the Son? Did John get what he was after in your life? So one of the vital signs that he gives us in this letter, so before you answer that question yes or no, one of the vital signs that he gives us about our certainty is our confidence. Okay? The measure of certainty that you have is directly tied to the measure of confidence that you have towards the Lord. Towards the Lord. Are you filled with confidence today that you belong to the Lord? So this comes twofold in this letter. This confidence towards God. And I want you to think about where you stand. In this regard, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 calls it confidence for the day of judgment. Where do you stand in, in, in this regard? That you are more and more confident when that day of judgment breaks out over all of God's universe. When Jesus comes back to judge the world in righteousness and the wicked are crying out to rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb. That the righteous are filled with confidence in that day. That's the one we waited for. That's the Savior. Judgment's about to break out, but I will be saved. Confidence for the day of judgment. As we walk through this letter, are you walking more and more in the joy of sin forgiven? That it's a reality in your life. Not a checklist on a piece of paper. But it's your daily experience. That Christ your propitiation has bled for your sins. That Christ your advocate stands before the Father and pleads on your behalf. And, and that results in joy of sin forgiven in your life. That you are the sinner set free. That you really believe it. That is good news to you. Listen to how it says it in Proverbs 14, verse 9. It says, Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. It's not just a dot on a piece of paper. It's something for you to be experiencing day in and day out that Christ has removed our sins. He's that scapegoat in the book of Leviticus. Our sins are placed upon Jesus. And He carries our sins away from the presence of God. And they're standing there looking at the scapegoat. And He gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And they're looking at the horizon. And he, just a speck on the horizon. And then all of a sudden the scapegoat disappears. Never to be seen again. That is the picture. God has removed every Christian's transgressions from you. As far as the east is from the west. Never to be seen again. Is that good news to you? Are you walking in the joy of that? This confidence is also placed in another direction. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, calls it confidence that God will answer your prayers. 
So here's the question. Are you waking up more and more to what this letter is supposed to be doing? Are you walking daily in more and more confidence that you call on the creator of the ends of the earth and you have his ear in Christ? You call and he answers. That you have real living contact with the sovereign one, the king of glory. That's the vital sign. How aware, how awake are you to this reality in your life? That you pray in the midst of a world that calls on false gods every single day. And these false gods do not hear them. In the midst of, of this world like that, that you call and the maker of mountains responds. He, he responds to your request that you bring to him in the name of Jesus are you awake to that? That you have real contact to God. And so this is, this is what we want to go, go more and more towards. We want to wake up to the glory of eternal life. This is, this is an amazing salvation that we have been given in Jesus. It's not just something that we check off like a list. It's something that we praise God for. That we walk in the joy of it every day. And so our prayer is that God would help us to see... How rich we are. Lord, I see these things. But the practice of my life is I'm called to these things many times. What do you do when that happens? You pray the prayer of Ephesians chapter 1. Listen, verse 17 and 19. That the Father of glory would do something to you. What, what are we asking Him to do? That He would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? That's what we want to ask the Lord to do even today as we walk through this passage. Show us this glorious salvation that you have given us. Show us how rich we are in the Lord Jesus. So what our passage today is going to do is as we're waking up to these gospel gifts that we have been given in Christ, specifically the ear of God. As we're waking up to the reality of these riches, our passage today is going to remind us that, that we see these riches and we don't hoard them for ourselves. It's not to be spent on ourselves. These riches are to be used and spent for the good of others. So specifically with prayer, we're going to see this. We have access to the throne room of heaven. The holy of holies through the new and living way that Jesus opened for every believer. Nobody has more access in this room than anybody else that's in Christ. Every single one of us go directly to God in Jesus. And this passage is teaching us, but when we get there and we stand in the presence of the King of glory, we're not supposed to be stuck on ourselves, preoccupied with our own little worlds. We're supposed to be going to Him on behalf of others, asking King Jesus to extend His kingdom to the ends of the earth and work in His church. You can see this, these riches are to be spent to obtain blessing for others in our passage today. Is going to place that specifically on your brothers and sisters in Christ. On your brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is the main point. This morning. This passage is about effective 
prayer for other Christians in the midst of sin. That's what this passage is intended to do. God wants to teach us something. And so last week you heard a sermon about us praying, us having eternal life, and us having confidence in God. And if we pray anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And we know that if He hears us, we have the request that we have asked of Him. Amen? I was encouraged last week. I talked to many of you who were encouraged last week. So what we're doing today is we're continuing with that same theme of prayer, confident prayer. And what, what God has done is He gives us a specific example in this passage. How, what kinds of things should I be praying for with confidence? And he's, He gives us this example. This is an example of what we can pray for with confidence that's according to the will of God. So we're going to study this passage this morning under three headings. The first is I'm going to expose a condition that the Holy Spirit wants to make us aware of. And the second is a clarification that needs to be made as that condition is exposed. And then we're going to end with what I'm calling a glorious participation that God is calling every Christian into this morning. So I'll tell you this on the front end. Okay. Point number one, we'll probably spend 80%, 85% of our time in point number one. So don't get nervous when we finish. We are almost done. Okay? I'm just not real good at, at uh, evening this out. So hang with me. Alright, let's look at this. The broad condition that the Lord wants to make us aware of. Listen to it, the first few words in verse 16. If anyone sees... His brother committing a sin. Stop. I'll read it again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So this is the condition. I want you to learn it well. We'll talk about why in just a moment. Okay? You need to be made aware of these uh, of what parts get put together. To make this condition. And the first is a brother. Okay, We're talking about someone that all the evidence points to. They are believers. They are in Christ Jesus. Okay, You're confident that they are Christians. And let that word brother be a reminder to you about something. Okay? We're talking about someone that you share all things in common with. Your brother in Christ. Okay? That reminds you that that person, that brother or sister, they have the same heavenly father as you. And that there's no stronger bonds than the bonds that relate us in the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 calls it the unity of the spirit. And then it says it calls it the bond of peace. Okay? So we're talking about the strongest of relationships in the entire world. Across the body of Christ. This is a brother, a Christian. I say it like this to remind myself of a right way to think. That you have more in common with a Christian that you've known for five minutes than for a family member that you've known for years in your life. And, and I can relate to this very personally. I have a grandfather that has known me my entire life that I love. That's like a dad to me in many ways. Knows me inside out. But he renounces the gospel. He is outside of the Lord Jesus. He is militantly against faith in Jesus Christ. And I love Him. It means the world to me. But the truth is, 
that in Christ Jesus, I have more in common with the believer that I meet in China that speaks Mandarin that I have to talk to through a translator that tells me about his conversion story, about how he came to Christ. I have more in common with that brother in five minutes than I do with my own grandfather that I have known for 31 years of my life. That's not a knock on my grandfather whom I love. That's exalting these relationships in the body of Christ. Me and that brother share Jesus together. We share everything in common. So this is the condition. A brother. Someone within the spiritual family. And then we are told that you happen to see something in that person's life. And I want that to be really clear. Okay? The condition that we're laying out is something that you can see. Okay? This is not the heebie-jeebies feelings that you think you see in someone else's life. This is something verifiable, something with evidence that you look and it is evident that something is wrong in their life. And that's a good reminder. Just because you feel like something's up doesn't mean that something's up. Okay? You see something off in this person's life. And it puts it together like this. That you see this Christian brother literally sinning a sin. Okay? That you see your brother or your sister in Christ and they have taken God's law and they have snapped it over their leg. They are breaking God's commandments and they are walking in unrighteousness. This passage tells us that our first move, when we see that, the very first thing that we do, guess what it's not? Not gossip. Can you believe what they did? Can you believe? Have you heard about what they did? Not that. Okay? It's not indifference of you hear about sin in the body of Christ and you're so locked in your own little world that you can care less about it. It's not indifference. Okay? It's not impatience. Can you believe they did that again? Again they did it. That's not what we're told to do. We're told that the church's first response to sin within the church is to pray. Is to pray. I want you to see that. Okay? And here's the deal. We better learn that well. Because that's going to be a repetitive pattern until they put us in the ground. Okay? Do you understand that? That, that Christians will sin. Christians will sin. Until they die, until they are glorified with the Lord Jesus, they will sin. It will not be the habit, the practice, the pattern of their life. That's the message of 1 John. But they will sin. It, not, it won't be the deepest truth about them, but it will be real. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we're going to sin. Your Christian brothers and sisters, you're going to observe things in their life when they break God's law. What happens next? What does that sin always do in a Christian's life? It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. It breaks our fellowship with God. Every single time. And, and if you're a believer, you know what this feels like. By experience, a relational breach has occurred because of sin. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. Okay? Our legal position before God the judge unchanged throughout eternity. God the judge is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. We don't need to be re-justified when a Christian sins. 
But there's a relational breach between us and God the Father. Okay? We don't lose our place in His family, but our sins grieve Him. And for a temporary season, we lose a sense of His presence, a sense of His pleasure. Puritans used to call it losing a sense of God's smile on your life. And I know that every single believer, you've experienced something like that and you hate it. There is nothing worse than this, than feeling far from God because of sin. That's what it does. That's, that's one of its attributes. That's its nature. It breaks fellowship. It's a terrible thing. So the text tells us that we should be praying for every brother and sister that meets that condition. That we saw something, they're breaking God's law, and they are now experiencing that turmoil that we just talked about. They are far from God because of their sin. They need to be restored to God, relationally restored. And if you love that person, you actually care about that. Why? Because you want the highest good for them. There is nothing better that can be had in this world than walking with God. And you want that for them. You want the highest blessings for them. You want Psalm 1611 to be true in their life. In His presence. Fullness of joy at His right hand. Pleasures forevermore. And if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's exactly what you want for their life. You want them to be full of joy. Close to Jesus. Pleasures forevermore. Walking with God. So that's what we desire to see. And it grieves us. It should. That when we see them sinning, that automatically means that's not happening. That's not happening. They're not experiencing fullness of joy. Okay? They are forfeiting temporarily. They are forfeiting God's blessings. And they're even falling under God's discipline. Okay? This is a terrible experience. It's not a joyful thing. And it should grieve us when we see this go down in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So I want you to see... This in the context. You know, everything we talked about in this letter seems to revolve around these three tests that keep coming back and forth. Doctrine test, obedience test, and the love test. And what he's doing as he's waking us up to eternal life, that we have the ear of God. You have eternal life producing confidence that when we pray, God hears me because I'm in Christ. And you have something else that eternal life is producing at the exact same time. God hears me on the left hand and I love my brothers and sisters and I see them wandering away from God at the moment. What do, what do you do when those two things come together? I have the ear of God and my brother is wandering away from Jesus. It causes us to intercede on their behalf. That is an expression of the love test of your love for the body of Christ that you pray and intercede when your brothers and sisters Sin. So I want us to get really practical about this. Okay, This is the meat of what I want us to leave here today thinking about, meditating on. How can you grow practically? How can you grow in your love for the other members of this local church? How can you do that? How can you be the brother or sister that's described in these verses? Okay? And I want to give us just a few bullet points to help you think through that. What does this passage expect of you as a church member of Grace Community Church? So I told you, this is a family meeting in a lot of ways. 
What does this passage expect of you? So I just want to pull out a few implications. I want you to hang with me for a moment. Okay? You see a brother sin, you intercede for him. What are some implications? Here's the first one. The passage simply assumes, it simply assumes that we will be in consistent fellowship with the body of Christ so that we know who our brothers and sisters are. See that? So that we know who our brothers and sisters are. Real simple here. How can you pray for a brother and sister who are in sin unless you're around enough to know who your brothers and sisters are? Okay? So everybody in this room is not a Christian this morning. How do you know who's in and who's out unless you're around? Unless you're faithfully attending the gatherings of the church. And you know what? That's really the heart behind the letter that me and Ryan sent to the membership of this church. Encouraging us to faithfully attend the gatherings of the local church. Why? Why? To, domin to domineer, to rewind to the 1960s? No, that's not why. Our, our goal is to keep the commandments of God in Scripture. That we, this is how we love one another. This is how we love one another. And do you know that this is so important that you know who's a brother and who's not? That Do you know this? That there are New Testament commands that you can't even keep unless you know who's in and who's out. Do you see that? Do you see the importance that's attached to being around the body of Christ? Who's a brother and who is not? Second thing, even further... Then consistently gathering with the church, the passage assumes that we will be relationally connected to the body of Christ enough to know the state of the souls of our brothers and sisters. Do you see that in the passage? It just assumes that. That something happens and you see it. It assumes that you're relationally connected enough that when somebody walks into sin, you see it and you pray. You see that? Do you know this? This is a possibility. This is a real possibility. That you can know more about what's going on with your favorite sports team or your favorite TV show than the state of the souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know that's a possibility? That you know more about it, that you're more concerned, that you're all in on these things and you don't know what's happening in the body of Christ. I believe that is an expression of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. Our life is supposed to be wrapped up and intertwined with other people. That's the whole, that's the whole idea behind this body metaphor. It's not just me and Jesus. I'm connected to a body. There are other members. Whatever happens with them affects me. You see that? So this, is, this passage assumes these things are happening in your life. Listen to Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So do you see that? God's command. He's turning us away from ourselves and our little bitty worlds and turning us out towards others just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. 
So some of us need to confront these idols. You need to think about these things. Is there anything even now that the Holy Spirit would bring to your mind that you give more attention to than the body of Jesus Christ? Than the body of Christ? Listen to Psalm 16 verse 3. Do you know these things? Is this your experience? you know anything of what this is like? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You know, any kind of flash of that, that I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to know how they're doing. I want to know how goes it with their soul. How are you doing in Christ, brother? What can I pray for you about? What are you praying about that I can join you in? How are you doing in God's Word? How are you doing in your resist and your struggle against sin? I want to come beside you. I want to help you. How are you doing with this? Wanting to know how the body is doing. And so we, what causes us from doing this is this worldview that terminates on ourselves. Okay? That we think it's about just us and Jesus or even my family and Jesus. Some of us today, you need to be reminded that's not true. You're not a religious free agent that does whatever you and your family want to do in Christ. You are part of a body. You are a member of a body. You are part of a family. You have brothers and sisters. You see that? One of the things that Cain said right after his brother Abel was murdered is God asked him about his brother. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? You see him evading the responsibility. The opposite is true of us. We are each other's keeper. We are to watch over one another's souls. To know how it's going with one another's souls in the body of Christ. The passage simply assumes that. You have no chance of doing what we see here unless you know what's going on in people's lives. So this is an encouragement to dig in, to dig in relationally, that you're there. But that's not the point that you attend. That's the baseline. You attend and then you dig in and you encourage your brothers and sisters that you stir them up to love and good works. This is what we see here. Not only does the passage assume that we'll be around and that we know how it's going, in one another's lives, it actually demands a step further. That we have a genuine concern for their soul. That we have a genuine burden to do them good in Christ. To see them walk with God. Specifically, in their lowest moments of sin. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin. You see that? So this, this is the emphasis. This is where we're going. Okay? And you just think about this for yourself. You put yourself in the place of that sinning brother. Okay? It's one thing to love somebody on their best day. Where they're painted up. Everything's going right. You know, they're, they're manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. They are filled with the character of Jesus and you love them. How easy is that? Okay? It's one thing to love somebody on their best day. But it's another thing to love somebody in their lowest moments, in the midst of their sins, in the midst of their rebellions against God. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what He did in our lowest moments. In the midst of our rebellions, He pours out His love on us. That's the same kind of love that we're supposed to be extending 
across the body of Christ in the lowest moments that we are there, that we are there to love them. So I'm just like you, okay? I'm just like every church member in this room. In my lowest moments of sin and stupidity and rebellion against God, I want countless brothers and sisters around me praying for me. Lord, help him. Lord, help him. I want him forbearing with me. I want him to love me. In my lowest moments, this is exactly what, what we see what, in, in 1 Corinthians 13. What, how love is defined. We'll read that in a moment. And you say, but what would that really look like? You know? Like, what does it really look like to love someone in their lowest of moments? Listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. Paul, Paul says this, Who is weak? And I am not made weak. Then listen. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. That's what it looks like. For you to love somebody in their sin. In their weakness. That when they sin. You're not indifferent. It's not a careless thing. That you just go rocking along with your daily life. They sin and it actually affects you. You begin to feel the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters. In the body of Christ. So according to Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, you actually have to bear others' burdens in order to fulfill the law of Christ. You know that? You want to please the Lord? You want to obey God? He demands that you actually get down low and bear those burdens of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know that that is in the context of restoring a Christian who has sinned? Can't obey God apart from this. We've got to get low and love our brothers and sisters. In the midst of sin. So this genuine concern. For these wayward brothers and sisters. It drives us to our knees. Right? It drives us to intercede. We want to see God do something in their life. Why? Why do we go to the knees in prayer? Because we love them. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7. Love bears all things. Love Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see that? We get the opportunity to do that in the midst of these moments of weakness. And so we bow the knee and we call on God because we believe something about them. We believe so. We believe all things. We hope all things. We believe something is true about our brothers and sisters in Christ. What's true? In the midst of their sin, we believe that that sin is real. But ultimately, they're not defined by that sin. They are defined by the gospel. There are some realities that play in their life that swallows that sin. And so we bow the knee and we call on God and we, be we begin to plead for them. We begin to plead for them. This produces a massive amount of confidence when we pray for brothers in the body of Christ to be delivered from sin. A massive amount of confidence because they're in the covenant. All the promises of God are theirs in Christ, even in the midst of this moment of failure. And so we go to God according to His will, and we begin to call on God on their behalf with confidence that God is about to answer us, and He's going to restore him or her. Sin's dominion, in regards to that person that's a believer, it has been broken in Jesus' name. He has snapped sin's dominion, delivered them from Satan's dominion. And he has performed a finished work in their life. Okay? They, a Christian, even in the midst of their sin, 
They do not belong to sin. They belong to Jesus. And so we begin to pray these promises with confidence on their behalf. So when we do this, here's what we're doing. All we're doing in those moments is we're beginning to join the Lord Jesus in His high priestly ministry of intercession on their behalf. Because He's calling out, never ceases to intercede the will of God on behalf of His church. And so in those moments, we just enter into what He's doing. You get, you get some ideas of what He's praying for wayward brothers and sisters. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 11. He says, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. Keep them in Your name. You think that prayer of Christ will be answered for His church? Do you think the prayers of Jesus will be answered for His church? Holy Father, in the midst of sin, keep them in Your name. Look at verse 15, same chapter. He prays to the Father for His church and His request, His petition is keep them from the evil one. Same question. You think that prayer of Jesus is going to be answered? He is pleading to the Father, the one who never sins, the one who prays God's perfect will is interceding for Him. John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays to the Father for His church. Father, sanctify them in truth. Think that's going to happen. You see this. And so we join Jesus in the middle of these certain prayers, His high priestly ministry for our brothers and sisters. Look how it's described in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we join Him in these prayers. Jesus has gone before us. Their faith will not fail. We can have confidence in these things. We are joining Him in these prayers. And what this means, okay, is that sin is not the end for that sinning uh, Christian, that brother or sister. It is terrible. It can cause all kinds of problems in their family, in a local church. But if they're in Christ, it's not the end for them. It's not. We can pray with confidence that Jesus is going to finish the work that He started in that brother or sister. And so next week you're going to hear about Jesus in the next passage of 1 John as we close. You're going to hear about Jesus, the one born of God. He's protecting every Christian from Satan and sin. He does that. Evil one can't touch Him is what it says. But what we see in this passage is how is He doing that? And what we see is really clear. Jesus is protecting His church from sin and from Satan through praying brothers and sisters. And so He does the sovereign work through this means. The Son of God protects us as the church of Jesus Christ prays for us in our moments of weakness. This is encourage you to pray. That this is how He ordained to do it. This is how He set up His creation. This is how He's going to restore us. He's going to raise up a brother or sister to pray for us to join Him in His high priestly ministry. So you think about this. You're going to see this many times and in many ways in this local church. Because we're not perfect. We've already talked about that. What do you do in these moments? If you love them, if you have a burden, what do you do in these moments? 
you come to God with confidence and you begin to plead the new covenant that there really is blood on the mercy seat of heaven in regards to that brother or that sister. It really is true. Jesus perfected them one sacrifice forever. They are righteous in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is theirs in Christ Jesus. And so you begin to ask God to work His will in them, to finish His purpose in their life, to accomplish what He started, Philippians 1.6. Or you ask Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, you ask Him, the author of their faith, the one who gave them faith in the first place, you ask Him to perfect it, to, for, to finish the work that He has started in them. You plead John chapter 10, Jesus, you said that every sheep hears your voice and follows you. And you say, Lord Jesus, I believe that promise. I don't see it right now in their life, but I ask you, stand by your word. They're your sheep. Let them hear your voice. Restore them back to you. Show yourself to be the good shepherd that calls them out of darkness. This is the plea. Confidence that we are bullseye in the middle of the will of God when we begin to pray like this for the body of Christ. So you ask yourself this. Very practical, okay? What would it look like for you to pray like that for this local church that you are a part of? That you would grow and come into God with confidence that He would work in the lives of your brothers and sisters, especially, especially in their moments of weakness. So I'll pause right there and I'll make a quick entry point to something very practical at Grace Community Church. Okay? Many times, many times, me and Ryan have been asked some form of the question, I love this church, I'm encouraged by this church, I want to I get plugged in, what do I do? Okay? What can I be doing to serve this church? And that's a good question. Filled with godly, sincere motives. And almost every time, the first thing that we begin to encourage people with is once a month, we send out an email with this little attachment onto it. It's called a membership directory at Grace Community Church. Seems so insignificant in some ways, and yet in other ways, that little list becomes a glorious help to you to know who your family is in this season of your life. Who your brothers and sisters in Christ are that you have committed before God to watch over their souls, to encourage them to the very end, to ensure that they persevere to the very end with Jesus. And so we encourage people that, that one thing very practical that we don't want you to move past is that you would take that letter and you would see who's in this family that you are a part of and you would begin to intercede. That you would begin to, to call on God on behalf of this family. That you would pray for your church. And that you would use that as an opportunity to see these names and you say, you know, I don't know them. And there's a, automatically an opportunity to get to know them. If you, if you don't know them, you know who you don't know. You know who you're responsible for and you don't know. And so this is a tremendous tool in the local church to help us. To help us. It's not a little insignificant attachment to an email. Those names that we're supposed to be carrying before Christ into the presence of God. To the presence of God. I want you to think about it. That's the meat of what I want us to leave here today. Feeling the weight of how can I grow in that movement? How can I grow in interceding for this church? I want to feel responsible for my brothers and sisters more than I do right now. Okay? What would it look like? Pause. Because that's the meat. And I want to introduce us 
through a small little clarification that John gives us in the middle of this confidence in prayer for the body of Christ, he slips this in there. Okay? So I want you to go to the end of verse 16, and I want us to read these words. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay? This is a difficulty. I, I do not want this clarification to distract you from the main point of why John wrote this paragraph. And we've already talked about that. He wants us praying for the church. He wants us praying for the body of Christ. So let's press into this. He introduces us to two categories of sin. Both of them are wicked. All sin is wrongdoing. But he splits it in two categories. Okay? One category of sin leads to death. And the other category of sin does not lead to death. And it really gets more specific. It's literally a sin that leads to death. Okay? Now, there are a lot of opinions about what this sin unto death is. I'm going to give you two. Okay? I'm going to let you seek the Lord. And you see which one of these, or both, some, some land on both, that you think John has in view here. And before I give you those two, I want to give you a potential third. Okay, so me and Ron, we're uh, going back and forth a little bit this week, trying to encourage one another about what we see here. And I get a text message yesterday, and he says, you know, figured it out, basically. And he says, um, he says, God asked my daughter on a date equals sin to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool, you know, something... Something must have uh, sat with him a little weird about the Christian homeschool group. You know, maybe some little kid eyed Keely or drew her a little picture or something. It didn't, didn't sit right with him. Okay? Alright. Two options. The first involves a true believer. Okay? A true believer. So, here's what we're saying. That both of these are true. Okay? Biblically. We, we want to know which one or both of these are, are in mind in the context of 1 John. So there is a type of sin, biblically, that God specifically judges with a sudden physical death. Okay? Listen to Proverbs 15, verse 10. There is severe discipline for those who forsake the way. And we have some examples of this in, in the Word of God. I believe you have an example of this happening to a Christian in at least two places. The first is Acts chapter 5. We are introduced to a couple, married couple. Okay? And their name is Ananias and Sapphira. And in Acts chapter 5, we read that they make a plan together to lie to the Holy Spirit. To lie to the Holy Spirit. And because of this sin, you read that. God strikes them dead in the middle of a church gathering. Ananias and Sapphira. Sin lied to the Holy Spirit, and God takes their life in a millisecond. So this is this is this is biblical. This can happen. Okay? Listen to 1 Corinthians 11, where we stop reading every week. Okay, for the Lord's Supper. Listen to these verses. 
Verse 29 through 32. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So you see that. Okay? That God in His sovereign wisdom. Okay? At times in His word, God determines that a Christian is better off in heaven than on earth. A sinning Christian is better off coming to be with Christ and glorifying in the presence of Christ than being on earth and compromising the witness of the gospel. That can happen. That can happen. We see examples of that. If that's the sin unto death that he has in mind here, then what, what he's telling us is once that happens, if God were to judge a sin in that way in our midst, he's not saying that we pray about that. Okay? So, so simply that would mean if they die, we don't pray for their repentance anymore. Okay? Why? Because we don't pray for dead people. Okay? That, that's not biblical. We're not Roman Catholics praying for saints to be released from purgatory and all this weird stuff all over God's creation. We don't pray for dead people. We don't preach the gospel to dead people. We preach the gospel to people who are alive and we intercede for living people. Okay? So that's, that's what he has in mind here. That's the encouragement that we pray for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ until they drop dead. So that's, that's the encouragement of how, of how far this intercession goes. Persevere in prayer until they physically die. Until they physically die. Alright, the second option involves, I'm going to call this a false convert within the church. Who commits a sin that leads to certain death. Eternal death. Okay? This is someone who, this is important, who fully and finally... Rejects God's testimony, the Holy Spirit's testimony about the Son. And you see that back in, this is the context. Both of these could work. You see that back in chapter 5, we have this, this truth to us that, that the Spirit of God bears witness to the works of Jesus Christ. And that becomes the testimony of God. And it is possible... For someone, not just not to believe that, to reject it in a full and final way. Okay? This is not the unbelief of unbelievers in general, which we should pray about. You should pray that unbelievers who don't believe the gospel get saved and believe the gospel. This would be a more specific sin of once for all renouncing the gospel, which we should not pray for. Because God will not answer that prayer. Okay? Jesus calls this the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he says that this is the only sin for which there will never be forgiveness. You commit this sin and you can never be forgiven. Why? Because everything we know about this sin is once this sin happens in a person's life, their heart is so hard that we know that they will never repent of their sin. They will never repent. Of their unbelief. Their rejection of God's testimony about Jesus. They are beyond all hope. Because they once for all rejected 
the only message that can save them from sin. Do you see that? So if you cut off yourself finally and forever of the gospel of Jesus, then it makes perfect sense why there's no forgiveness of that sin. That's the only thing that can forgive you. And you have fully and finally rejected Christ and His gospel. Now, the difficulty is really clear. Okay, How in the world do we know if somebody steps across that line to the point of no return? Okay, We need to be really, really, really careful about that. That there is no hope for you. You have rejected the gospel forever. Really careful about that. Okay, But, I'll tell you this. The original recipients of this letter... When John began to write things like this, they would have had names and faces in mind. Who were they? Those false teachers, those antichrists who were part of the visible community, knew the truth about Jesus, continued on for a time, and then renounced the true gospel and left the church. Presumably forever. Okay? Let's, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. This is why I'm calling them false converts within the visible church. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so when that happens, if you were ever see that happen in a person's life, that is not an example of someone who is saved, who is righteous in Christ, losing salvation and losing righteousness. It's not like Jesus paid for their sin and then things got bad enough and Jesus says, never mind, never mind. And retracts his, his, his gift of salvation. It says that they did that and they were never of us. It's really, really clear. They're false converts that seem to be true converts for a season, but then they renounced the true gospel and left the true church. Okay? I believe that there is some evidence that they could have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Two times in this letter, you have phrases like this. 1 John 2, 18 says, Many antichrists have come. 1 John chapter 4, it talks about, in, in verse 1, Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Both of those verses use something called the Greek perfect tense. And, and you've heard this a couple of times as we, as we have talked through this letter. And what that means is something happened in the past that has abiding effects in the present. And so the picture that you get when you read those verses is not just something happened a while back in, their, in that person's life. That they made a one-time decision forever. Okay? They ain't coming back. They are, they are not only false teachers, they are beyond hope. They have fully and finally rejected the Lord Jesus. Okay? This could be the sin unto death. You have to seek the Lord and, and which of these you land on or both. Many people, either way. Okay? So here, back to the main point. Praying for the body of Christ in sin. This, this, is, this, is, really, this is really still a strong push. That you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ until they die or until you are convinced that they are beyond all hope. Do you see that? So the call and the meat of this passage is that we continue to persevere and go to God in prayer in confidence that He will answer us. That He will answer us. As we close, 
I'll go back to the middle of verse 16 where John gives us what I'm calling a glorious participation. And I want you to be encouraged by this. Look at in the, in the middle of verse 16. I call it 16b, but it, I, I, yeah, I think that's right. Um, he says this. You know, you, you see this happening in this brother or sister's life. And then he says this. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. All right, I, want, I, want, I want to encourage you with this. Okay? The word God is not actually in the text of Scripture. There's one subject and two words. And so literally the phrase reads like this. He shall ask and give life. Okay? Now, translators make a move there because God is obviously the one who ultimately gives life. But I believe that's worded like that for a reason. Okay? We know that that's true, that God is the life giver. But that's worded like that in such a way that the sovereign God gives life through these means. Through these means. So in a real sense, we call and He answers and we participate in God giving life to wayward brothers and sisters. This is glorious. This is glorious that it could be said of us that we participated in giving someone life from heaven. This is the same way that it's worded in James chapter 5. Listen close. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this is, this is glorious. I want, I want to make you aware of a ministry in the church. This, this is a ministry in the church that is open for every single member of, the, of Grace Community Church. Look at what it said. Okay? Do you see how glorious this is? That, that you can go into the secret place, close that door, no one else is around. And you can be used by God to give life and to save souls from death. Is that not a glorious thought? Say, what have you been doing today, brother? Oh, I've been giving life to the body of Christ. You say, well, that sounds a little weird. You say, well, I don't mean in the ultimate sense. I get no glory for these things. But I participated in the sovereign God reconfirming eternal life for my brothers and sisters in Christ. What a glorious ministry for a sinner saved by grace to bow the knee and to play a part in these things. Do you see this wide open door for you? In this local church, that we can pray and God will answer us with confidence in this. Okay? This is not a ministry for someone pursuing a name for themselves, a Christian name for themselves. Many times, it's easy to, to, to be filled with zeal for public things that people can see, like what I'm doing right now. This is not a ministry that you get accolades for and recognized for. Almost certain. Nobody is going to see you walk into the prayer closet, close the door, and begin to call on God and be used by God to give life to your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a secret, private ministry that, that only the Lord Jesus knows about. And yet, it's wide open for you. Every single one of us in Christ. And I just want to say this. This is a privilege. 
This is an opportunity for every one of us. And so instead of hammering down that we need to be doing these things, we need to be praying for one another. Look at what the passage is doing. It's saying we can be part of giving life to somebody, saving souls from death. Come on, this is wide open for you in Jesus. That's how it's motivating us. This is wide open for us in Christ. So I want us to think about how can we go after that as members of this local church? What does this mean for you as you walk out of this place today? Okay? And I'll close with this thought. We're a family. Grace Community Church, we are a family. We are united in Christ to Jesus. There is something significant and special about the bonds of a local church that are not even shared with other Christians. Okay? We are together. We have partnered together to pursue the mission of Jesus. Scripture pictures us like a family marching through the wilderness. That we are on our way to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. We're a family. We're a family. The most important thing going down in every season of your life and anybody in this church is that you're in fellowship with God. That you're maintaining that contact that the Lord Jesus has given you in His gospel. It's the most important thing happening in every believer's life. That you are walking close with God. And what we want to do is we want to back up. And we want to be concerned about that for ourselves and for the whole body. That we would be filled with zeal. What, would it, what, what do you think this church would look like if every single member walked out of this place today with a resolve that I'm about to go to war for my brothers and sisters. I'm about to wage war in the heavenly places because I believe what, what He said from the Word. Right there. I believe that they're in the new covenant. I believe all the promises of God are theirs in Christ. I believe that Jesus is going to finish His work in His church. I believe that God's going to perfect that which concerns Him. What would it look like? Every one of us walk out of that room and begin to intercede with that kind of confidence for this local church, that every single one of us would experience the full benefits of eternal life with God. Nobody left behind. Nobody struggling behind. Everybody walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the certainties of Your Word. God, we thank You for the firmness of Your covenant. God, we thank You for the finished work that you have accomplished on our behalf. God, we ask you to help us to pursue you corporately, God. Strengthen us as a family. Lord, grow us where we are weak. Mature us where we need to be more like you. God, use your word today to this end. God, make it effective in your church. Drive us to our knees for one another. And Lord, answer us from heaven. Come be the living God in this church like you promised to be. And answer us in Christ, we pray. Amen.